Welcome back. This is News Talks on the Record. It's Gavin Riley with you until one o'clock this afternoon. Now, this week, a new history book was launched telling the story of one of the most shocking murders of Irish history, the Phoenix Park killings. This all happened in May 1882 when the newly appointed Chief Secretary of Ireland and his deputy, the permanent undersecretary, were brutally killed, stabbed with surgical knives. The killings brought chaos to the Irish political arena and they almost brought about the end, the downfall of the career of Charles Stuart Parnell. And if that all sounds like a classic topic for hidden histories with Donald Fallon, you would be right, because Donald's in studios with us now. Good afternoon, Donald. It's good to be here. I should say at the beginning, the Chief Secretary of Ireland, it was his first day in the job. Now, I've had some bad first days in the job, but this was a pretty bad one. It is up there, certainly, all right. Uh, <laughs> this is all to do with a gang called the Invincibles, who have largely faded from Irish memory. They have. People may have heard of them. There's a, there's a very rousing verse about them uh, in the classic song, The Monto, you know, made famous by the Dubliners. Mm. It wasn't very sensible to tell on the Invincibles. They stand up for their principles day and night. And the reason we're doing the slot this week is uh, it's quite nice. There's a new book just published called The Invincibles, The Phoenix Park Assassinations and the Conspiracy That Shook an Empire. That is and a title. It's a great, a great title, title for a book, isn't it? And I mean, the book is remarkable for a number of reasons. One, there's great new research in it, but primarily, you know, cr- tremendous credit is due to the publisher O'Brien because this book is by Dr. Uh, Shane Kenna, who was an absolutely prolific uh, young historian, the author of numerous studies on the murkier side of Irish nationalist history, kind of Fenian movement. Mm. Uh, but Shane died two years ago uh, this week after a, a short but very brave battle uh, with cancer. I think there's just something very nice uh, about this manuscript making it to publication. So Shane was always a very, very productive mm. uh, historian. He put out six or seven books in a short life and he's still putting books out. Uh, so fair play to O'Brien on, on getting this one onto the shelves. Indeed, and a lovely way to mark his anniversary too. Uh, the aforementioned book is a story of secret societies and as you said that the murky underbelly of nationalism. Yeah, I mean, the story of Fenian politics is murky. Uh, they were perhaps the worst secret society in history in the sense that they were in an office in Broadway with a green flag <laughs> flying over the building and, and a dynamite training school in Brooklyn that's, at one point. It's like the, the secret service guys in America you go over to them and they say are you in the secret service and they go yes and they've got absolutely. lanyards that say secret service. Around them. <laughs> absolutely and you know in itself it's a story of clandestine political operations and you know it's a difficult thing to write about for a story in something like the Fenians because there isn't really a paper trail mm. such as the nature of revolutionary politics and this being Irish history it's a story that you know occasionally uh, is defined by splits you know the great Brendan Behan joke the first item on the agenda in Irish politics is the split mm-hmm. so the story that we're telling today is about a secretive body within a secretive body <laughs> uh, known as the Invincibles who operated as a kind of assassin, an assassination squad uh, within the capital and who carried out one of the most audacious uh, political assassinations uh, in, in British and Irish history. Right, uh, so let's set the scene then. This is the, the 1880s and obviously there is nationalism and there's the whole home rule front but also at the time the real political issue as far as Ireland is concerned is land. land. Like the 19th century question of questions in Ireland is, is land and things are getting a little bit better by the late 19th century. I mean in the 1840s 80% of the population of Ireland controlled slightly more than 5% of the land. You know, things could only get better. Mm. But the political climate in Ireland, really, in the late 19th century, is dominated by, well, home rule was never going to go away, and then land. And you get this land war, which is, you know, it's sporadic, it's spread across large parts of the country, but there's an almost constant presence of, like, agrarian violence in late 19th century Ireland. You know, people are boycotting uh, landlords, there's vicious debts. This guy, Peter Dempsey, I've always found this story kind of sad, he's a tenant farmer in Loch Ray. 
He takes over a farm, someone that's been evicted, and then he's shot in 1881 while walking with his two daughters to Mass. There's this tension, you know, in rural Irish society mm. uh, about land, and it's not going away. And the British try their best. I mean, they introduce some kind of meaningful uh, land reforms, but as long as there's evictions, these very violent evictions of tenants, there's real tension. And you get things like the No Rent Manifesto, October 1881, which is signed by Charles Stuart Parnell, which is extraordinary because, you know, Parnell is a constitutional political leader. Mm. He sits in the Westminster Parliament in London and he's encouraging the widespread non-payment of rent. You know, it says one more struggle in which you have the hope of happy homes and national freedom to inspire you. One more heroic effort to destroy landlordism, mm. end the system which was and is the curse of your race and it will disappear forever. Stand together in face of the brutal cowardly enemies of your race. Pay no rent under any pretext. The idea of the recognised political leader of Ireland. You know, Parnell is referred to as the uncrowned king of Ireland hmm. telling Irish people not to pay rent is just extraordinary. It's it's quite subversive for someone who was, as you say, a constitutional leader of his time. And of course, he was in and out of jail all throughout this time and yet the violence continued he was. anyway. He was released only on the pretext that he would use his political influence to try and stop the agrarian violence that was kind of sweeping over rural Ireland. But it didn't stop. You know, things got a little better. And then in May 1882, the month when the Phoenix Park murders happen, there's just shambolic scenes of chaos uh, in Ballina, County Mayo, where the RIC, the Royal Irish Constabulary, just lost control over a protesting crowd, firing on them and killing several young children under the age of 14. So that really sets the scene for what happens in the Phoenix Park. There's this boiling rage in the west and south of Ireland in particular uh, when it comes to the land question. Now, they're often forgotten about because of how long uh, has travel passage since. This is 139 years ago, I think, or 137 years ago. Uh, but these uh, murders in the Phoenix Park unprecedented not only the time but possibly since in Irish politics too arguably the most high profile murder yeah. oh, there has ever been in oh, this the, island the men that are killed in the park are the highest ranking British civil servants ever killed in Ireland and their deaths you know in, in, in some ways yeah, they're a direct response to what happens in Ballina uh, and, and, and nationalist anger in general it's half five Saturday the 6th of May 1882 and these two men are just strolling through uh, the Phoenix Park and one of them as I mentioned at the start Lord Cavendish he was hours into the job. I mean, he literally arrived in Ireland the day previous. He was replacing a guy called William Forster, who was very highly uh, regarded as a hate figure, very rightly regarded as a hate figure among Irish nationalists. And he advocated kind of using lethal force against Land League agitators. And for that, he got the nickname Buckshot for favouring even firing on them. Right. Cavendish, by comparison, I mean, this fella hadn't put his name to a single document. He hadn't even said at his own desk and he's walking through the Phoenix Park. The other man, Thomas Burke, was a kind of long-standing target. He was essentially head of the British Civil Service mm. in Ireland. Maybe Cavendish's great misfortune was just to be in his company. And one of the, the gory but important details about exactly how they died 137 years ago is the weaponry that was used. Not weaponry that you often hear being associated with murders. No, and Kenna writes about this beautifully in the book that there were surgical knives with blades of some 11 inches in length oh, purchased from Wise as a well-known instrument maker in London's Bond Street. So they got them into Ireland in great style, actually. One of the, one of the radicals in England, a guy called Frank Born. Uh, he gave the knives to his heavily pregnant wife who had smuggled them into Ireland concealed in her skirt because they calculated that the authorities they wouldn't search a heavily pregnant woman and in that sense they were actually correct so you have these surgical knives not exactly a, a traditional weapon of war and having carried out the killings the men of the Invincibles get away in a carriage it's a great story actually that this guy Miles Cavanagh just gets them out of there as quick as they can they make their way to Davies Pub on Leeson Street which is now the, the Leeson Lounge <laughs> mm-hmm. and order around I suppose that's your, that's your alibi isn't it where were you oh, we were here all along yeah. and they awaited the coming political storm and interesting you know we're talking about this on a Sunday morning 
One outcome of the murders was a first in Irish history, which was Sunday newspapers. You know, many of the Irish wow. daily titles didn't publish Sunday editions, but there was so much gossip spreading through the city about these murders that the next day you had Sunday newspapers uh, on the shelves, giving the kind of brutal details of the manner in which That's the men... That's fascinating. Yes, yeah, so it transformed Irish media history, uh, you might say. One mm. of the men had his throat, slow, uh, throat cut, and it was just... It was gory, gory stuff, you know, and it was enough to sell papers the following day. So what was the point of carrying out something like this unclaimed... Over subsequent days, you know, these cards arrived in various newspaper offices, the Freeman's Journal, the Irish Times, claiming the debts and said, we are the Irish National Invincibles. And probably using the, the equivalent of the recognised code words of, of their day as well. Um, presumably then the investigations come very quickly, but they were handed a lifeline with a very high profile informant. The man who, read, who led the investigation, John Mallon of the Dublin Metropolitan Police, was well known for kind of heavy-handed tactics and he could, get, he could get a confession out of someone whether they'd done something or not. But the Fenians were deeply infiltrated uh, in Dublin, which was an extraordinary achievement on the part of the authorities because one, it's a highly secretive uh, organisation. Two, when they find informers, they deal with them by killing them off. And three, they operated in really, really small circles. So the Fenians operated in what was called the circle and there might be 10 or 12 people in mm. your circle. And that was designed to stop infiltration. You know, the smaller the unit, the harder it is to get into. Okay. But this guy Mallon like, quickly got them. You know, he formed the idea of who the hit squad were uh, and he rounded up the suspects and cracked one of them, a guy called James Murray, who was actually one of the leading figures of the Invincibles. And he convinced, or James Carey, pardon me, and he managed to convince James Carey, essentially, that the others had turned on him when in fact they, they hadn't. Oh, okay. So Carey goes Queen's evidence, the star witness of the case, and his word is then crucial uh, to the deaths of the other participants. Joseph Brady, Daniel Curley, Michael Fagan, Thomas Caffrey uh, and Timothy Kelly all hanged on the evidence that's given by James Carey. Now, one of the five men that you just mentioned, though, ends up delivering a speech which then in turn manages to galvanise public opinion on their side anyway. Much like Robert Emmett in 1803, you know, it's it's the great speech that enters history uh, and death in Ireland tends to deliver a degree of absolution anyway and likewise a good thundering speech will, will ensure that you're well remembered. And one of the hanged men, Daniel Curley, he delivers what I, I consider one of the finest speeches. Whatever about, you know, the, the, the morality of what they, these men had done mm. the speech is just an incredible piece of, of, of oratory and he stands up and says I know the position in which I'm standing here I'm standing on the brink of the grave you know what words I will speak only the truth I admit I was sworn into the Fenian organisation when I was 22 years of age and from that time to the present I worked openly in the organisation and he ended it by saying you know I am a member of the Invincible Society undoubtedly unhesitantly and he went I suppose to the death he went to, to his death with great courage the five were buried in Comainham Jail they actually remain there today which is kind of curious you know because so many yeah. remains including Kevin Barry uh, and others have been removed from prisons like Comainham and Mount Joy to Glasnevin but these lads remain there and it's kind of curious that you know one of the most shocking tales of 19th century Ireland should be so forgotten or relatively forgotten at least today. I'm really struck by the use of the title Invincible Society though that it's almost to a certain degree it's channeling some of that Christian imagery that we see afterwards yes. that this is just something you can't just quell out. Um, amazingly of course then all of this ultimately culminates in another case. This is already made for Hollywood this story and then it just ends in this remarkable way where there's this great plot twist at the very end where James Carey the informer I think Carey had a sense that his life was in great danger and you know with that in mind the mm. authorities were like we need to get this guy out of here mm. and they remove him from the picture they put him on board a ship bound for the Cape under a false name It's, it's almost and witness protection of its time It, it is yeah. exactly it's the witness protection of his day you know and on board unfortunately for Carey was Patrick O'Donnell uh, a Dublin bricklayer who befriended him on learning his true identity proceeded to shoot him dead on board using a pistol he had in his luggage so there are very different times when you could bring a pistol with you uh, in your hand luggage I mean you wouldn't get away with shampoo today <laughs> no. but a pistol back then was fine and O'Donnell was actually brought to London you know put on trial and executed 
uh, for his role in killing Carey. And he shouts from the dock, he says, three cheers for old Ireland, the hell with the British and the British crown. And when news of Carey's death made its way back to Dublin, there was jubilation. I mean, the newspapers talk about effigies and bonfires blazing uh, in the hills. So this all began with a stabbing in the Phoenix Park, you know, and it culminated in this murder on board a ship destined for the Cape. Just from start to finish, it's a, it's a, it's a story of great madness and it's a story that's very, very well told in, in, in Shane Kenna's yeah, new book. All documented in that new book, The Invincibles, The Phoenix Park Assassinations and The Conspiracy That Shook an Empire. It sounds like a, a really great piece of work. Uh, Donald, as ever, thank you very much. Donald Fallon is the author of the Come Here To Me blog and books. Volume 2 is in all good bookshops now. Uh, that is all that I have time for today. My thanks to our producer today, Neve Hassel. Roisin Davis was on research. Jojo Cardoz was on sound. To play us out on this day, there's a few birthdays. Ronan Keating is... 42 years old, probably gets an no all-fair play anyway, but happy birthday to you, Ronan. Uh, the American singer Stacey Orico is 33 today. Suffice to say, that's overruled. Another person born on this day in 1954, Chris Hughes, producer and drummer with Adam and the Ants, 65 years old today, and in his honour, we shall stand and deliver. Off the ball is up next. I've been Gavin Riley. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. 